HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexa Santos. The Feed Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Here on the podcast, we are speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community to hear their stories, learn about their culinary inspirations, and get some of their best cooking tips. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Sean Sherman, aka Sioux Chef. Sean is an Oglala Lakota Sioux Chef cookbook author, forager, and promoter of indigenous cuisine. Sherman founded the indigenous food education business and caterer, The Sioux Chef, as well as the nonprofit North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Well, this is all very exciting and very cool. I'm very pumped to be speaking with you today, Sean. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the very beginning. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Obviously, you have a lot of culture and history and rich things happening in your life. So where? how did this all start? I was born on Pine Ridge, South Dakota, which is uh, the third largest reservation in the United States. It's in South Central South Dakota, just above uh, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did um, just, you know, grew up there as a kid. It was a lot of open spaces. Um, and my mom moved us off the reservation right before I started high school. And we moved to a small town in the northern Black Hills of South Dakota called Spearfish. Mm-hmm. And there I did high school and college um, and then eventually moved to Minneapolis. Okay, so you've been kind of out yonder in the in the U.S. For your whole life, it seems. Uh, yeah, you know, I've moved around quite a bit, especially um, with this job. It's uh, taken me all over the place. So. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of your earliest food memories? Like what did you kind of grow up eating? Um, some of your favorite foods when you were little, that type of thing. Well, we grew up, you know, very rural in the country and Pine Ridge is a really large area and, you know, there's not a lot of food access on Pine Ridge particularly. We didn't have any restaurants on the reservation growing up at all. We'd have to leave the reservation to go to a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Pine Ridge is 
roughly the size of Connecticut, and there was one grocery store there to service that entire area. Wow. Um, so it's extremely rural and not a lot of food access. So I primarily grew up with commodity food program foods, which is a lot of government subsidy foods, uh, canned fruits and vegetables and meats and cereals and grains and, and like powdered government, powdered milk and government cheese and all those kinds of things. Oh, my gosh. Um, but we also, you know, I hunted um, growing up too. So we had a lot of birds around us. There was a lot of pheasants, a lot of grouse, a lot of, uh, sometimes you go duck and geese hunting in season. Um, sometimes there's venison or antelope or rabbit. Um, but for the most part, um, I, uh, my grandparents had a cattle ranch. So we also had access to a good amount of beef, which isn't typical for a lot of families on the reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much what I had. Wow. So when did you start becoming passionate about food and deciding that you wanted to become a chef? Well, that was all fairly accidental for me because I just started working in restaurants um, when we moved off the reservation because we didn't have a lot of money. So I got my first restaurant job when I was 13 and I just worked restaurants all through high school and college. And then after college, moved to Minneapolis and just worked my way up into a chef position. Um, I'd originally moved to Minneapolis thinking I was going to go to art school, but then realized there was no way I could afford art school. So I just stuck with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually I found art through food, which was pretty nice. Oh. And then, you know, for me, it was just a few years into the chef career that I had the epiphany of doing what I'm doing today, which is the focus of indigenous foods, just because I realized the complete absence of Native American anything in the culinary world, oh. um, like no restaurants, um, very, very few cookbooks out there. Nobody really had any sense of what Native American foods were. And it just was really striking to me since I grew up in a Native community and I'm enrolled with the Oglala Lakota Sioux tribe. And and um, that it just should be something that's out there, you know. And it, for me, like I could name hundreds of European recipes and could le- name less than a dozen Lakota recipes. Right. So it just sent me on a path to understand. Yeah. And that's kind of where my, well, my next question was. So for those who, which it seems like many are not familiar with indigenous and Native American cuisine, what is that? What does that look like? Or what are some dishes that, you know, that are those dishes that we, for whatever reason, don't know about, unfortunately. It's just, you know, it's really diverse because, um, you know, in today, in today's world, there's 574 tribes across the United States, 622 in Canada and 20% of Mexico still identifies as indigenous. Um, so there's just a, an immense amount of indigeneity and d- diversity out there. So, you know, saying what's a typical native American dish is like saying what's a typical European dish, you know, mm. there's just too much diversity. So, so for me, it was just really a study of trying to understand indigenous foods in a modern world. Um, so we just look at what people were eating here before European settlers came over. Um, so the philosophy that we kind of created around the foods that we do is just looking at very regional and culturally specific and seasonal foods. Um, and try not to fusionize them just to showcase region. And so, you know, we cut out colonial ingredients so we don't use any dairy or wheat flour or cane sugar or beef or pork or chicken. Um, and we just, because all those things were introduced and haven't been here that long. Mm-hmm. And we just really wanted to focus on what people were really surviving off of and started creating modern indigenous pantries. Wow. Really, really cool. So what happened then in between when you were, you know, you worked your way up, you had this chef position, then you kind of started realizing that you wanted to take this journey to shine more of a light on indigenous cuisine. What was kind of that journey and that path like for you? 
Um, you know, I, you know, like, like a lot of people coming from a reservation, I didn't have that much money. I didn't have a trust fund to open up a restaurant or anything like that. So I had to work really hard and, um, I just kind of hustled. So I just started taking lots of catering events and doing very specific. The style that I'm doing is mostly making foods that represented the tribes here in Minnesota, which are the Dakota and Anishinaabe tribes. And um, just, you know, utilizing a lot of things like wild rice and uh, Native American agricultural products. I aligned myself with a lot of Native seed keepers to see who is still growing a lot of these cool agricultural pieces like the corns and beans and squash and sunflowers and chilies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just started experimenting. Um, and learning and I started being able to go to lots of tribal communities and share the work that I was doing and I really got into public speaking because people kept asking me if I would talk about it so you know over the past few years I've spoken at probably every in every single state and so many different universities and tribal communities and even around the world Um, so it's been really good to be able to you know create a platform to talk about these things and these issues and um, just share this knowledge. Yeah absolutely and what I mean you been all over the place. What is the, I mean, I assume you get a warm reception and people are kind of excited and anxious to learn more about this, but is that how it's been? You know, there's kind of a hunger to learn more about this or what has your uh, experience been kind of teaching this to so many different people around the country? Absolutely. There's a big movement of indigenous food sovereignty happening all over the place across North America. And, you know, we've just been really kind of on the front line of that, um, you know, because we released, I released my cookbook way back, way back in 2017. Um, and I formed my company in 2014. We've been doing a lot. I've had a food truck. We've had a catering company. We just launched our restaurant in 2021 wow. in July in Minneapolis. And, you know, we just won this year's James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant in the entire nation. Which oh my is- gosh, congrats. The huge award to be able to stand stand out from, you know. Yes, my goodness. Well, yeah, I was going to ask if you had kind of a a restaurant location. So thank you for sharing that, and that is so 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 exciting. Is it? It's right in Minnesota, like in Minneapolis. Yeah, we're right like downtown. Right downtown Minneapolis, right on the Mississippi River. It's called Owamni by the sous chef. And um, it's been very popular. We've been sold out every night since we opened in July of 21. Oh my um, and again, all these big awards and lots of lots of media. So you could look it up and it's all over the place. So That's incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I probably have seen it, but I didn't know. Like it probably didn't, I didn't put two and two together that it was you. That's so exciting. And what are what are some of the like the favorites, like some of the menu items that are the most, I guess, touted at the restaurant. Uh, I feel like their menu is really simple. We do kind of a family style where people just order a bunch of stuff off the menu and share it at the table. Um, mm-hmm. We have lots of true wild rice from Minnesota that's all hand harvested from canoes. And it's not like the black wild rice you find in grocery stores. Um, we use a lot of different uh, native corns from of different colors from different native nations around the United States. So we have like blue corns and white corns and yellow corns and red corns and spotted corns and all sorts of different things. And we even nixmalize a bunch of corn and make all of our own masa. So we make a bunch of tortillas and tamales mm-hmm. and um, kind of things like that. And it's just, you know, it's just a lot of, we use a lot of wild food. And again, just following that same philosophy. So cutting out colonial ingredients. So there's no dairy, there's no wheat flour, no cane sugar, no beef, pork, or chicken, lots of wild game, lots of fish, and, um, you know, just lots of fun stuff. It's different, and it's just true flavors of North America. 
Really cool. So are you in there on the line very often or is it kind of the first year for sure yeah. I was back there just getting it set up, but we have a really good crew. Um, and I've been kind of shifting to do a lot of the other work, which is the work that's kind of around the nonprofit and just uh, a lot of networking, a lot of travel, a lot of working with different tribal communities and higher educational univers- universities and um, just connecting with lots of people all over the place. I think this year I've probably been in probably 50 cities and 10 countries or something like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping that, you know, at this point it was a little more hands-off for you, but it sounds <laughs> like you have a, a great crew over there to keep it going. And how does it feel for you to have so many people be not only trying this food, but, you know, raving about it and have it be such a success? It's great. You know, we, um, if, Figured we'd probably be popular because we've always been kind of popular with our social media circles of the work that we do. Um, but it was hard to gauge that it was going to be this popular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're just doing what we're doing. We're standing out. It's something different. Um, and we're just able to utilize this platform to, you know, talk a lot of talk about a lot of issues. Um, and uh, and we just try to push a lot of money and support towards our nonprofit for all the work we're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. And since we're here talking about it, I guess, what are some of the, I mean, it's probably hard to spark notes it, but kind of some of the main talking points or issues that you like to raise awareness about? So I do a lot of talks. People can find my TED talk to see kind of a smaller version of it. Mm-hmm. I think I had 16 minutes in that talk, but typically I'll do like about an hour long. And I just really talk about the work that we do and why we think it's important, why people should understand indigenous foods and indigenous cultures and indigenous histories. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of take people through the colonial history of the United States, kind of starting right around the year 1800 and looking at those two centuries from 1800 and 1900 and 1900 to 2000 and just all the stuff that indigenous people have had to go through, you know, and all the extreme, uh, just violence and, uh, relocation and the reservation systems, the assimilation efforts in boarding schools and residential schools, and just like all of these, you know, all this stuff that happens to us as indigenous peoples to explain why we don't have native American restaurants in every single city. Cause mm-hmm. like, you know, you're, you, you said you're in Florida or, you know, if you go to New York or if you're in Chicago, like you can find food from all over the world, but good luck finding a native American restaurant that represents. Sure. The land you're standing on, you know. So we just really wanted to bring awareness to that and just showcase that Indigenous peoples hold a lot of knowledge, and we're just trying to steward that through our nonprofit, and we're trying to create a support and development system so we can help develop more restaurateurs and entrepreneurs, food producers, and just food operations, especially amongst tribal communities, because our Indigenous foods happen to be extremely healthy because you know mm-hmm. we're gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, pork-free, like all the things all the diets are trying to get to. And we just really want to see, um, you know, some dietary changes and nutritional access happen out there. Because, again, growing up on Pine Ridge, with one grocery store to service an area the size of Connecticut, there was not a lot of fresh food access. And we have a lot of issues like a lot of uh, type 2 diabetes and obesity Mm -hmm. and heart disease. Um, And it's just, you know, it's not balanced. Like it's, it's it's too high in the indigenous community. So we just really want to try to influence people to eat better and just be really proud of the foods that we can reclaim and re-identify. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, there's, I feel like the, the work that you're doing in kind of these TED talks and explaining this history and the, the trials and tribulations, I feel like there's the fact that you're doing that through food is unique as far as I'm aware, you know, just kind of having that real hands-on way to kind of, you know, have people come to your restaurant, taste the food, you know, experience as you're explaining these stories, kind of what you're describing. Is that 
kind of a lot of why you wanted to meld the two things, you know, food with this level of activism and education, because it is kind of a unique, almost very strong way to have that resonate with people. Absolutely. I mean, I just really want to get it out there because in, if you look at education through an indigenous lens, like our our education was the thousands of generations of knowledge that was handed down to us, giving us those tools to live sustainably with the world around us and creating such a deep relationship with the world. And just identifying what colonialism did um, to this land space and to the indigenous cultures um, and just the removal of people and just all of the extraction for profit and just, you know, the just so much environmental um, damage happening um, over a long period of time over, you know, quite a few decades. And we're just seeing, um, you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of repair to do. And if we just had more indigenous knowledge that we could rely on, we could, you know, see the value of the plants and the trees and the environment around us. And we, we should have a lot more plant diversity in our diets than we do. Because the Western diet's never really taken the time to really learn like all of this wonderful botany that we have all across North America, and mm-hmm. it's you know re- really relied on its the foods that people brought over from Europe for the for a large part of it. Um, and there's just so much more plants out there that we could be relying on, and it just really showcases what our regions are, you know. So it, it's a diverse food system, and we should be celebrating that diversity and not trying to just homogenize everything like we do. Right. Really, really, really interesting. I mean, this conversation is already, we've only been talking for, you know, 15 minutes and I'm already learning so much. So is that, <laughs> um, I guess, is that cool? For, like, I don't know. It's it's such a cool thing that you're doing, obviously sharing this information with so many people around, you know, the country and the world. And does it, does it really ever get old for you to kind of have, to see people have those aha moments and kind of realize and come to terms with these things that you're explaining that you know they may have not thought of before yeah because it's unfortunate that we don't really learn about american history going to schools in america because the you know the the history books are written by um, the victors so we're taught to kind of uh, uplift the colonial story but it it dismisses like all the extreme violence and genocide that happens um, in a very short time period of human history um, and just a lot of atrocities and a lot of justification around that you know it's just been you know the united states has been built on a very racist and segregated structure for so long Mm -hmm. Um, and many people of color have always seen that Um, but tribal communities you know we we just we still have daily reminders and especially with the reservation systems which are still modern day segregated communities um, there's just a lot of issues out there and we're just trying to you know shine a light on indigenous peoples and doing it through food is such a great way to do it because food is so powerful and food is such a strong language and it's something that we all have in common as humans so it opens up so many doors and so many conversations yeah, for sure. And when you're giving these talks or people are asking, what what do you kind of tell them are some of the, I guess, action items you can take as someone who's maybe, you know, had their eyes open to everything you're explaining and, you know, what, what can I do or what is what are kind of the steps that people can take? Well, some things I just tell people just to be curious about where they live and, you know, learn the histories of the land that they're on, learn about some of the tribal communities that might still be around them um, and learn about some of their stories and some of the hardships that they had to go through to 
still be here today and you know learn about like how they looked at the world like take a time take the time to learn the plants around you like stop calling everything a weed because that just means you don't know what it is right Mm -hmm. and just like you know start to see like uh, if you start to learn the plants the names of them and what your relationship can be with the plants around you you'll start to see nothing but food and medicine and just everything around you You know nature is so giving and that shows you why we should be protecting nature instead of trying to dismantle it for profit yeah no kidding so there's a lot of like important takeaways from what it is that you teach but is there kind of a number one takeaway that you hope people kind of learn or walk away from well, I mean, some people's just trying to get people to be aware of indigenous peoples, you know, because I've heard a lot of times like, uh, you know, people don't even know that we're still existing as indigenous peoples. Um, and there's just a lot of um, mistruths out there about indigenous communities and peoples. And we just really want to highlight that we're here. We're modern day people and we have a um, deep histories that uh, were the original peoples of this land space. And no matter where you are in North America, you're standing on indigenous land and all of North America's history begins with indigenous history. So we should be including those stories. Um, And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. So, but again, food is something that's fun. Food is something that's tangible. And we're really excited that we've built this platform to get people to be curious. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So is your family, do you still have family members that are still on the reservation or has everybody kind of? Absolutely. Lots of family on the reservation and all over the place too, but yeah. And how often do you get back out there? Oh, I try to get out there a couple of times a year. Um, Pine Ridge is about 10-ish hours from where I'm at currently in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so, and I, you know, I, I love going to the Black Hills in South Dakota. That's kind of the heart for, the heart of everything for the Lakota. So it's a really special space. And uh, so I try to, try to make it out there when I can. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a hike, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worth it, worth it in the end. And I, I know you said when you were growing up, there was only the one grocery store in an area the size of Connecticut. Is that still the case? Not much out there. There's some gas stations. There might be a couple of smaller grocery stores, but nothing, nothing really to address the issues that we have with nutritional food access. Huh. Um, so, you know, that's why we're working with, uh, with our nonprofit model, because uh, our goal is to replicate um, our, our, our public facing space, which is called Indigenous Food Lab, which carries a native market space, uh, an indigenous uh, community classroom to teach live classes on all sorts of facets of indigenous education and a commercial kitchen just to a lot of food relief and a food production and training. Um, so our goal is to replicate ourselves and move around. So we're already um, starting to plant seeds to open up more food labs in Anchorage, Alaska, Bozeman, Montana, Rapid City, South Dakota. And we're going to keep growing from there. Wow. 
Amazing. And is that situation that you described with there just really being not a lot around and such a lack of, you know, access to nutritional food, is that pretty commonplace in the areas that reservations are around the country still? Typically, I mean, it depends, of course, on where the reservation is mm-hmm. and what kind of resources that they have. <laughs> some tribes have been able to become very successful and some tribes still struggle a lot. Um, so it's, you know, it's a it's a diverse board of needs and issues out there. But, um, you know, all indigenous communities across the United States, we've all gone through this colonialism. We've all gone through assimilation, um, education, and we just have a lot, a lot of repair work to do. Yeah, absolutely. So it does it, I, I guess in your shoes, does it, I, I, even just thinking about it, it already feels like kind of like, oh, it's a lot to deal with. And it's like, you bite off a lot. And I guess, how do you kind of go through with like all this really important work of just like where to begin? Does it get overwhelming at times to kind of be like, oh, what do we do? Like, there's so many things that we need to work on. You know, it's hard. It's hard to build a nonprofit from scratch and restaurants are crazy businesses and they're chaotic. Um, and, you know, it just definitely is a tough business. It's very demanding, but I also feel feel like I have X amount of years in my life to build something unique and this opportunity is also unique and I I don't want to waste it. I really um, feel privileged that I created this opportunity and I want to utilize it responsibly. So I just really want to do as much work as I can um, while I have working years in front of me and eventually leave, leave a better foundation and structure for the next generation to build off of so they can be bigger and better than whatever I could attain. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of your biggest, I guess, goals and ambitions with, you know, what you've started? Well, I just hope that we start to see these food labs pop up all over the nation. So eventually we'll start to see more and more indigenous food businesses because we would love to see the vision of just driving across this nation in any direction, stopping at indigenous focused food businesses and experiencing all the regional and amazing diversity that's out there. Um, and, you know, our goal is to not only place these in cities all over the United States to be regional center points for more nutritional food access and education access, but also um, we can cross colonial borders. So we can be up in Canada or down in Mexico, or we can be overseas like in New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, um, India, Africa, wherever, South America. We just really want to create something that stewards indigenous knowledge for future generations. Yeah, amazing. And so, I, I don't know. This is just so exciting to talk to you about it. And then your cookbook as well. I'm like, there's so many things. Your cookbook, um, is that like another really cool thing too? So it's not only like people can, you know, you have the restaurant where people can try indigenous food in person and, you know, learn about it, but then to kind of have these recipes that people can make at home. Um, is that something that's really exciting for you to be able to, to know that people like have this in their home and are cooking these foods that are your recipes and stuff like that. I know that's always yeah. very exciting. You know, we just really wanted to showcase our philosophy and the cookbook was a great way to do it. There's a second cookbook in the works, but that one, the first one's been really great and it was really great working with uh, my co-author Beth Dooley on that project. And it's just been, you know, it's been, it, that book gets used in universities and school systems. I really wanted to use it for education and, you know, it's just been very popular and uh, I'm just glad it's out there in the world. Yeah. So I know you have your restaurant in Minneapolis. Are there any other like, I guess, hubs around the country that you can think of that have Native American food? Like say people want to go try a restaurant near them. Like are there 
yeah, I mean, other than just Googling, you know, like Native American or indigenous restaurant near me, is there kind of any areas where there's a lot of them or no, more of um, them? You know, we're the only restaurant like what we're doing in the entire nation, um, wow. the continent. And there isn't, you know, there are some Native American restaurants out there like Tokabe in Denver. Um, my friend Crystal Wapipa just opened Wapipa's Kitchen in Oakland. Um, Sly Fox Den up in Connecticut or Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, but there's not that much out there when it comes to like indigenous focused restaurants owned by indigenous peoples. Um, so we're just trying to showcase what's possible and just be role models for future indigenous entrepreneurs. My goodness. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I lived in New York, I lived in Chicago, you know, I'm now in the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, and I've never seen or heard of anything like that. And exactly. it's exactly, but it should be normal because again, like we're on indigenous land everywhere and there's indigenous peoples everywhere. So we should really be being able to experience all these diverse cultures out there. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's kind of crazy and eye opening to, to think of that because there's so, I mean, especially in a city of New, like New York, that's what you hear so many people rave about with the city is just that you can, you know, there's, it's such a melting pot of cultures and, you know, if there's any, you know, cuisine that you really want to try, there's, there's access to it, but I just really haven't seen that. And for, for the indigenous culture, and it's just like, wow, how is that even possible? <laughs> I just don't understand. Right. But I guess that's what you're that's why you're fighting the good fight, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot to do. But like I said, there's a big movement. There's a lot of tribes that are really in, in, into this. There's a lot of uh, support and monies pouring into um, Indian country for the development of more food production. And, you know, with the work that we're doing and some other groups that we're going to see more, hopefully we'll see more and more indigenous food businesses start to pop open in a very short time period. Yeah, no, that would be great. And so as part of your work, is that kind of something that you – have also been doing is, I don't know, maybe mentoring younger chefs to kind of start this or kind of like plant that seed so that other chefs kind of start doing it in other places? Or is that kind of one step at a time? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, with the nonprofit, we get to bring in people um, for training and development. So we work with tribes, we work with schools, we work with entrepreneurs, um, and uh, we bring people in so they can just work alongside us in our nonprofit kitchen, which is the Indigenous Food Lab and at the restaurant Awamni. And uh, just, you know, we're just creating spaces to develop more and more um, people in that uh, that business. Yeah, very, very cool. So looking, you know, five, 10 years from now where like, you know, it's the future, but it's not like, oh, crazy so far off. What is kind of like the number one change that you want to see? Again, I just hope to see more of these businesses and yeah. restaurants out there. We hope to see more indigenous food producers growing a lot more native heirloom food products. So whether they're agricultural pieces like the the bridles of corns and beans and squash and sunflowers or just whatever people come up with. You know, there's a, there's a lot of indigenous peoples out there. There's a lot of creativity and we just want to see a lot of health out there and we want to see a lot more just food access out there. So yeah. um, that's where that's what our hopes are is what we'll start to see. Amazing. Fantastic. Well, is there anything major, important that I'm missing or that we haven't discussed yet? Um, you know, there's just a, it's an exciting time for, I think, Indigenous peoples because we're just kind of crawling into this era of a lot of reclamation and there's just a lot of really smart young people coming up and really interesting Indigenous businesses and a lot of influencers. And I don't know if you've seen like the TV show Reservation Dogs, but there's just more mm -hmm. and more Indigenous representation starting to happen. Um, and I just think that's really positive and I just want to do the best I can to, you know, play my role and to really just work on um, starting to normalize some indigenous foods out there. 
Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much for kind of sharing this story and kind of doing a Spark Notes version of <laughs> everything that I'm sure takes a lot, a lot longer <laughs> to explain and to really get into detail about. So okay, and kind yeah. of making that digestible, no pun intended, for me and the audience to really kind of understand what your mission is. And I know there's a lot of research and history that goes behind it, but at its, you know, at face face level, surface level, it is still like a very, you know, an important thing to learn about. So I just appreciate you sharing that with me and for the listeners. And it's been been amazing chatting with you and learning about this. Absolutely. Well, thanks for talking to me. You bet. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.